I wish I would have learned how to use a drill before I left for the amazing race because I've never really used a drill. And you know what? I blame sport. I really do. I blame sport for that. (laughs) Welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lowell and Julie, sharing stories, empowering mindsets. Sarah Wells, Olympic hurdler, Amazing Race Canada sister, and founder of the Believe Initiative is here. Sarah is very familiar with obstacles, literally and figuratively, and she has become an expert at getting over them. As a hurdler, she competed at the 2012 Olympic Games in London and won the silver medal at the 2015 Pan Am Games. Her athletic career didn't play out quite as she expected after that, and she used her story to help over 12,000 youth in North America understand the importance of being resilient and the power of being yourself. Sarah has worked with organizations such as Salesforce, Deloitte, Procter & Gamble, Kraft Heinz, Bell Media, and RBC on how to build more resilient teams. She's a passionate and inspiring person, and lucky for us, an excellent storyteller. In this conversation, we talk about her super cool siblings, the people that have shaped her life, her athletic highs and lows, the Believe Initiative, and of course, the Amazing Race Canada. Time flew with this one, and we know you'll enjoy her stories as much as we did. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm so great. I'm so great. Looking forward to chatting with you guys. Yeah, ditto. Just right out of the gate here, you have something major in common with each of us, besides the Amazing Race thing. Yes. Tell me more. Yeah, with Lowell. Intrigue, I know. You guys both have (laughs) a Pan Am or a pair of Pan Am silver medal. And with me, we both hate being cold. This is, oh. what, this is what I learned from the race about you. <laughs> yeah, I hate it too. Like, yeah. hate it. And I live with a household of very warm-blooded people. That's the worst. Yeah. That's the worst. Like, no, it's actually nice out, but I was freezing in our house. And I was like, I'm so cold. And my partner was like, it's not that cold out. <laughs> I think it is actually like the first nice day. And I'm like, I'm freezing. We need to turn the heat on my hands. I can't feel that. <laughs> Lol teases me because when we went through that cold snap of being minus 30 to minus 40, was it, Lowell? I was actually fine. I think because other people were actually feeling cold as well. And I was bundled up for it. So I was prepared for it. And everyone else was complaining about the cold. So I felt like we're all on the same level, finally. And then it goes to like minus seven. I'm like, oh, I'm so cold. (laughs) Right. I know. I know. I just bought a new coat that to like minus 30 and below. Because like that, that was its rating. It was like, this coat is for minus 30 and below. I'm like, Sign me up for that because that's like at least probably a minus 15 coat for someone like me. (laughs) We are always excited to get to know, to get to meet a fellow Amazing Race participant. So I'd love to hear about that, but also this connection to sport. And we know that sport is a huge part of your life. And we'd like to get to know Sarah. So can you tell us about your your story? Let's let's go way back to the very beginning. That's a pretty good place to start. I did see that she's a November baby like you, Lowell. I am. November 10th. What are you? November 13th. Scorpio. Oh, so close. Wow. We really are all tied together. <laughs> I mean, story-wise, I sucked at sports. Everyone thinks that we should be good as Olympic athletes, but we are not necessarily. And um, I got cut from every team in high school, basketball, volleyball, soccer, you name it, I got cut. And then eventually my high school teacher saw me in gym class and he was like, you should do track and field. And I was like, dude, you don't want me on your team. Like uh-huh. I already got cut from every team at this school. And he's like, no, 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 I want to teach you how to hurdle. 
And I was like, you guys make cups? He's like, no. I was like, great. Sign me up for that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know and if so, I can handle any more rejection, but. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So found track and field, ended up doing hurdles, fell in love with the sport, won my like city championships, and then eventually won the provincial championships and then nationals and then set my sight on the Olympic Games. And right before the Olympic Games, I got an injury in my femur. I got a stress fracture, which is like a deterioration of your bone from the inside out that leads to a crack and sat out for what was supposed to be three months, turned into nine months oh, geez. and ended up only getting back with only six months to go. And so I had to get back to who I was before the injury and then improve a whole second in order to qualify for the Olympic Games. Oh, and as you guys know, the sport of track and field, milliseconds matter. Mm. Like m many sports are decided between like the tiniest of margins. And so having to improve a whole second in order to qualify, everyone was like, let's remain realistic here. Mm. Like, let's not get our hopes up. And six months later, I blow my own mind and I make it to the Olympic Games. Boom. But <laughs> but honestly, the secret sauce, like the, how it went from getting cleared to run to six months later, make the Olympic Games, I think came from a tattoo I got that I got on my first day back to training after getting cleared to run after sitting up for nine months. On my first day back, I got the word believe tattooed on my wrist. Mm. And nice. I said, when I make the Olympic Games, I'm going to put the rings underneath here. Uh, and six months later, I go to the Olympics and I finish the tattoo. Uh, and I put the Olympic rings underneath the believe exactly where I said I would. I don't know if you're... That looks great. So the word believe is your mantra. How mm -hmm. did that word even warm its way into your brain and become such a huge part of your mindset? In 2007, I watched the movie Honey, mm. which is about these kids from a low-income area that have an art school that they try to like revive and at the end of it they do this dance presentation they've like overcome all the obstacles and they do this dance presentation to a song called Believe by Yolanda Adams and the song has like you know slow parts and then they build up gospel moments and it's all about watch me I can do this like if anyone mm. can do this it's me kind of vibe and it's so inspiring. Every time I hear it, I'm like, yeah, I like me, I can do this. <laughs> and so that song I put on my race playlist in 2007. And from 2007 until 2012, every single time I had an important workout or a race, I listened to that song as the first song in my warmup mm. was that Believe song. For five years, it was a part of what got me into the right headspace. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to tattoo that word right here. So that way yeah. I didn't even have to listen to the song. It was just ready to go. It's like a programming, that deep intention yeah. to set your sights on something big that you believe. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what it is. Just a matter of putting yourself in the frame of mind required that that's the first domino to fall to be like, and now I do these things. Yeah, that's awesome. And how did the 2012 Olympics go? Did they go as expected? Yes, very much. I mean, I wasn't expected to make it at all. And so everything's just icing on the cake after you're there. Yeah, exactly. Getting there was already a really big milestone for me. And once I made it there, I not only made it to the qualifying rounds, but I actually made it out into the semifinals. And so was super exciting. Like you said, it was icing on the cake. Like, sure, let's run my heart out. Let's see what we can do here. Mm -hmm. And when we were coming down the home stretch, the way that it works is like there's automatic qualifying spots and then there's people that have to qualify by time. So like the top four of every qualifying heat was going to make it on and then the next batch would go. And so you would know immediately though, if you got one of those top four spots. And so as we're coming down the home stretch, I'm battling for third and fourth against 
a great British athlete and we're in London. And so (laughs) the crowd of 80,000 people is already so loud, like a louder decibel than I've ever felt or heard in my life. Yeah. Normally it's just like my mom in the stands. (laughs) But when we're coming down the home stretch, the crowd can see us fighting, like vying for the spot. And I don't know if if we are in fourth and fifth or like, I haven't seen who's gone on in front of me. And so the crowd, as we jump over the final hurdle, goes to a like, ah, like decibel I've never heard. And so we're like fighting towards the line. We lean at the line. I like look up to the scoreboard to see like, did I get the spot? Do I move on? And it's like waiting, 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 of course, making you sit there with butterflies, like waiting for the moment. And it's like, Sarah Wells qualified. And I'm like, oh my God. So all of a sudden in my peripheral vision, this like group of red people, they were like dressed in all red, stand up. And I'm like, they've got to be Canadian and I must know those people. And so I just kind of like stop and point to acknowledge them. And a photographer caught that oh. exact oh. moment and it ended up being exactly where my family was sitting. And I had no idea. Oh. They just happened to be like directly in my peripheral vision. So really cool moment to have them there in the stands and celebrate this. Holy moly. Mm. Not only did you make it here, you've got another race. Yeah. And so is that photo of you blown up and up in your house somewhere? It is not. I actually have nothing up in my house. Literally not one Well, thing maybe there's somewhere to start. I, <laughs> yeah, I just retired, you know, like I haven't had time to put it all in order. But yeah, at, at some point, I'm sure it should. You're, you're doing the whole minimalist thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very, very clean walls. When we first got married, all we had were pictures of ourselves. <laughs> and so we had pictures everywhere. And one day I just looked around. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. And we just took them all down and... Even now, do we have any pictures of ourselves? Oh, no, a couple just, of our family. Now we just have pictures of our children up. Yeah. Well, no, only a couple. We have that whole wall oh, of nice. our of our extended family. Yeah. So They're it's like minimal. We don't, you know, we have mirrors to look at ourselves. We don't need to look at pictures of ourselves. That's so funny. But that power of family there, right? Oh, that yeah. that moment of they're cheering for you. It's a shared moment. It wasn't just you in that moment. That's really powerful. Oh, you're so right. Everyone who had made, I hate to use the word sacrifice because I always say make choices, not sacrifices, but everyone who had invested in that journey with me, my coach, my family, every person who had been a part of that whole experience for years and years at that point, it felt like a moment for all of us to celebrate. And I know you guys know this, the moments where we achieve something, it's all well and good to like have that and be like, yeah, I'm great. Really proud of myself. Mm -hmm. But it's even more special and more meaningful when you get to share that with people Mm -hmm. you love and and that you're so like grateful to have in your life that you get to share in that joy. And so I feel really lucky to have the family and support system that I did have around me because I talk about the word believe being a big part of me achieving that goal, but it did play a big role, but so did the amazing humans, like my coach, I trained out of University of Toronto's track club and the head coach there, Carl Georgeski and my actual coach, Dave Hunt, they never stopped believing in me in moments I had bad days or terrible workouts or whatever. Like they're like, Sarah, talent doesn't go away. Like keep putting one foot in front of the other. And so I owe them a big part of achieving pretty much anything I've done at this point is I can, you know, trickle back to them and the seeds they planted. So it also all goes back to the word believe. 
because the word believe just expands to others believing in you as well. Yeah. Oh, you're so right. So what was your parents and your siblings? You have how many siblings? I have three siblings. There are four of us total. Okay. So what was their role in your life when you discovered track and field? Because surely on the sidelines before that, they were like, oh no, another team she didn't make. So were they, were they like hesitant <laughs> or nervous at all? Or were they like, woohoo, do this. This is meant for you. Right. No, I love that. That's a great question. Before I even find sport, my siblings and I were very close from a young age and to a degree that I don't know if many people have this. And I was really lucky because of my oldest sister. Her name's Athena. She got the coolest name. That's a very cool and name. Yeah, the rest of us got Stephanie, Sarah, and Andrew, like the most generic boring names. <laughs> and Athena got Athena. My mom was cool for one child <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> so Athena had gone away right after grade 12. She did it's called One World, where you travel and you go and support a family in many different countries, but often in like a third world country that needs that extra support. And she really saw the value of community and like how much family matters and you need to be there to support each other. And so she came home from that experience and she just had this new outlook of like, I'm going to be here for you guys. My eldest sister is eight years older than I am. And so she came home as an 18 year old. And she's like, we're going to have siblings days. Aww. I'm 10 years old. And she, my 18 year old sister wants to hang out with me. Like, cool. I think this is the best day. Yeah. And so you're I'm doing like, something right okay. as a 10 year old. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so the four of us would have these days where Athena, she could drive, she could, she's a full blown mm. adult, you know, wow. and she would take the four of us out and we would do something just us, not with my parents, just the four of us. And because my older sisters treated me like that, I treated my younger brother like that. And oh. it just created this incredible culture of support that I will do anything. I would drop anything if my sibling said, like, I needed you here right now. Like, I don't care what yeah. it is. If my sibling, like, on the day of my Olympic race said, like, I can't come, you need to do this thing. Like, there's a good chance I would weigh a real cost of being like, I maybe I shouldn't go on yeah. the start line. Like, <laughs> They mean yeah, everything uh, to me. Mm. So because of, I think, having them, I have only recently talked about this recently, like connected these dots. People are like, well, what, what inspired you to keep trying for teams? Like, weren't you afraid you were going to get cut again? Weren't you afraid? Like, what, what inspired you to keep going? I wanted friends. I wanted yeah, to belong belonging, somewhere, yeah. like every teenager. Exactly. And so I don't know if there was anything inspiring me to keep getting back up, but I think I had enough sense of self and safety in my siblings mm. that I could go and put myself out there. I could take a few more risks because yeah. I had the balance of safety and support over yeah. here. And Lucky. Beautiful. I think that they played a huge role in me just being fortunate mm. enough to explore because yeah. I had them. And so they were never like, yeah, thank God you made a team. Like, I honestly don't even feel like it phased them. You know, yeah, like Sarah's yeah. not here at, for dinner because she's at a sport. Like, I don't care. Sure, whatever. Like, <laughs> you know, and my coach played such a big role in helping facilitate all the logistics of it all because he was my high school teacher. And then he, he was a coach, a varsity coach at the University of Toronto. And so we would finish school. I would get into the car with some other student athletes. We would drive up with my coach to the University of Toronto we would train with the varsity group and then he would drive us back to the high school, drop us all off so our parents could pick us up. And oh. so, you know, it's pretty hands off for my family a little bit. You yeah. know, like, my coach played such a big role in facilitating the ability for me to, to make it possible that, yeah, yeah honestly, I don't think my siblings were just like, yeah, cool. You're not here for dinner. <laughs> More for us. No, um, just kidding. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. But they were hundred percent sources of support. People I could lean on, talk to, cry, 
you know, whatever I needed. You speak to a really important piece in psychology. We talk about it as being attachment and attunement. But this idea of attachment, if you have a secure attachment with your family, it allows you to go take risks, to go explore, always knowing that this internalized other, your family is within you and you always have safety. Mm -hmm. You always have home to return to. It sounds like your family created this huge secure attachment in you that allows you to fly and dream and grow. Yeah, 100%. And so what's attunement then? What's the contrast? Yeah, so attachment is the the science of love. It's the connection. It's that bond, secure, insecure. Mm -hmm. And then attunement is seeing the other person and attuning to them, coming to the same frequency, coming to the same. So I see you, Sarah. I see that you're Mm. struggling. I see that you're happy and I'm meeting you there. And so that's what a healthy family can see the mudrine can come alongside of you and attune to your needs at that moment. Cool. That's great. Yeah, for sure. My siblings were able to do that. If we were excited, we were excited. If we hated that competitor, we all hated that competitor. You know, (laughs) I had that. You know, you already automatically had that whole team behind you every time. Hey, (laughs) totally. You have this past of maybe having this secure attachment in this family, but it is devastating to want belonging and try. How do you feel about that as a kid trying to put yourself out there and being cut and not making teams? How did the little Sarah deal with that? It's tricky to remember exactly. I have what I think is true at this point where I felt like I hadn't truly defined myself by anything yet, that it was easier to like try, let go, try, let go Mm -hmm. versus when you've already begun to define yourself, like I am a dancer or like Mm. I am a runner and then that's being pulled away from you or for some reason it's being taken away from you or you're being cut from a team that you really want but like no I'm I'm a soccer player like why am I being cut from the team it's harder to disconnect Mm. that way and I think as I got more defined by sport as the athletic one as the athlete it was harder and harder but because I hadn't up until that point like getting cut it was just kind of like all right I wasn't that not that either But maybe like one of the defining times that was more challenging to let go was I went to an art school. And so there was music, drama, dance, and mainstream. And I was just mainstream kid. And all of the cool girls were dancers. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a dancer. Like I wished that I was in the dance program. I wished that I like had any speck of rhythm. (laughs) And so I took dance as my elective in the ninth grade, hoping that like, you know, I'll learn some skills. I'll get better over time. I'll be kind of a dancer. I'll Then I'll join some like extracurricular kind of dance schools and maybe I'll, I'll do that. But I was so garbage at dance that my teacher actually told me an elective is supposed to boost your grade. Oh, like no. don't take a dance uh-huh. class. Ouch. <laughs> so how did your peers respond when you were cut from these teams? Did that impact you at all? Like, did you feel like they viewed you any differently? That popular, the dancer girls, you know, like I wasn't them. So like yeah. I wasn't in you're not under the same umbrella. Mm -hmm. For sure that affected that sense of belonging or who I would belong to and with. But then once I was kind of back into the, you know, one friend does tennis and another friend does volleyball and another friend does figure skating. Well then, you know, no one's all one thing. So it's just like, oh, Sarah's just finding what her individual sport is. And so luckily I had my group that was very diversified in their skill sets. I know that I was sad to not become a dancer, but then luckily <laughs> was just like, well, it's ninth grade. Like you're not fully settled in again yet. Right. Yeah. And so I think I was lucky in terms of timing wise, again, to like not be defined by anything yet. Yeah. And so still have quite an open mind about it. So to have a supportive family, a diverse friend group and not be defined by something that's very helpful. 
<laughs> so Great, kids, I'm glad go. you've summarized it. <laughs> it really is this looking at mindset because it's always how do we talk to ourselves in times of struggle and this podcast, Obstacles and Opportunities, how do you overcome the obstacles? How do you overcome the hurdles in your life? And yeah. do you learn from that? Do you learn to jump higher, run faster? Do you learn which races yeah. you can succeed at? And so that's seeing this mindset of Sarah, even from a young age is pretty neat. Yeah. I feel bad even taking full credit for that because sure it's the mindset, but it was like the people that help support it get there. So <laughs> diverse friend group, uh, supportive family <laughs> and not be defined. Supportive family. <laughs> I'll be fine. Great. Perfect. And you also, though, spoke so much in there about coaches, Mm. learning, growing, having a place to build competency with deliberate Mm -hmm. practice. So tell me, what is the main lesson you've learned about yourself and the world from your coaches? There's a few things that are coming to mind. And I think I learned these things from my coaches, but people often ask, how do you build self-belief on like a daily basis? Like, what's that practice? Like, how did your coaches help instill that into you? There's three things I often recommend. And the first is find your word. You know, mine was believe and other people, whether it's a mantra, like a phrase, a quote, maybe it's a thing, like a straight up object that reminds you of the strength you have inside. And it can be just those small triggers that help, in my case, literally set me back on track. (laughs) You know, we didn't have to have a sit down, big motivational talk every time to pull out the best in myself. You know, you don't always need that. But it's okay to need a trigger. Mm. You know, we all doubt ourselves. We all have those like moments where we question why we're doing this or like Mm -hmm. why we put ourselves in this scenario. And so to kind of exemplify this, there was a time I had a hill workout that was like so, so draining. It's brutal, this massive hill and you have to draw figure eight. So you start on the bottom left corner, you run way up to the top right, you jog down to the base again, and then you run bottom right to top left. And you draw these figure eights up and down and up and down. You pretty much are guaranteed to run till you get sick. And <laughs> we're almost done this workout and I want to give up and I want to stop. And this is me fresh off of that stress fracture in my femur. And I was not in great shape, but I had been telling people I still want to make the Olympic Games. And then we knew I needed to run about 55 seconds in order to qualify. And I'd only ever run 56 seconds. And so in this workout, other teammates of mine have now stopped I'm like potentially one of the last girls still running with all the boys and we're going up to the top and I'm sure my coach could recognize that I'm now fluttering. I'm probably going to start walking, you know, like Mm -hmm. I am getting so slow and I'm so defeated both physically, but also mentally. And he saw that and all he yelled was 55 seconds. And that's it. That's all he needed to say. And instantly I was just like energized of like, keep going. Like that's all I needed to just be reminded why I'm doing this, why I can, what was the purpose. So finding your work. A second thing is I was always encouraged to keep a workout log with the time, what I ran, what was happening in my life. What did I eat for lunch? How much water did I drink that day? Just all of the variables that could contribute to either successful or not successful workout. But also it allowed me to track progress Mm -hmm. because when you have a really terrible workout, And, you know, to parallel this with like students or like young people, it's like you have one bad exam, you have one bad day, you have a fight with your spouse or friend or whatever. It's like we get onto our own heads and we're we're really good at convincing ourselves of a story that is so not true. (laughs) We're like, oh my God, that was a bad workout. I'm actually a terrible athlete. What am I thinking trying to make Mm -hmm. the Olympic Games? Like this has actually been a terrible week. Oh my God, it's actually been a terrible month. You remember two weeks ago? Uh I also had that bad. I bet you it's been terrible the whole time. What am Uh I doing? That spiral of negative self-belief. 
Exactly. And by having this log, I could go back and be like, okay, was today a bad workout? Yeah, it wasn't my best work. But has it been a bad week? No. Has it been a bad month? No. Look how far I've come in, in my four weeks of training. And it would just allow me to foster confidence and mm. build up that sense of self-belief. A more objective look and get outside of the subjective Absolutely. negativity in your head. It's tangible science. Like it yeah. is qualitative science. <laughs> and so that allowed me to really find inspiration and confidence before mm. races. I would look at that book like it was the gospel. Like yeah. I loved that book. And I was really grateful to be encouraged to do that. And I have 10 years worth of workout logs wow. now because I kept it every year. And third and final thing that I think one of my coaches helped instill is about buying into the dream. You can't keep one foot out the door. You can't make excuses already, try to protect yourself and keep yourself safe. You got to be two feet in. And if we commit to a new training program or a new plan, or we're going to try a new tactic in a race, we have to buy in that this is for sure the answer. This is mm -hmm. definitely going to work a hundred percent in. That doesn't mean that you can never question it. It just means that like for the time that you set for yourself, whether it's like for that race or for the month, you're going to try this out, that you're all in. Mm -hmm. And then you pick your moments of reflection of like, okay, let's rise above. Look at the plan now. Like, did that actually work? Was that really a good idea? What did work? What didn't work? Like, where are we here? And that's when the and, journal comes in extra handy again. And that's when the journal definitely <laughs> helps. Buying in doesn't mean that you got rid of all escape routes. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a pack we made. We're doing this. Okay. And so you and I were convinced this is going to work. Okay. We're all mm -hmm. in for the next three weeks. Just having that understanding with each other helped us make the most out of every opportunity. So did you ever get to the 55 seconds? And we got to the 55 seconds. Woo! We ran 55, seven qualified for the Olympics. I remember the day of the race, knowing I had just run 55 seconds crossing the finish line. I didn't know if I was going to throw up or be alive, die. Like I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> Crawled into the grass patch beside the track that was near the stands. And I'm in fetal position, like a newborn baby who has no idea what's happening in the world. Like eyes glossed <laughs> over, like just trying to be like, this is amazing, but I can't feel my face. <laughs> and my siblings came running down from the stands. They were all uh -huh. there. And they like hung over the fence, looking at me being like, oh my God, you did it. Oh my God. And I'm just looking up at them being like, this is the best day of my whole life. <laughs> the best day of my whole life. I always tell audiences that I speak to that day, the best day of my whole life came together because six months before that, I had the courage to believe in me. Mm. It can be something that seems so impossible and we want to protect ourselves. But that day happened because six months before that, I was like, if anyone can do this, it's me. Mm. <laughs> So that was before the 2012 Olympics, right? Correct. And then the next big competition was 2015, Home Soil mm -hmm. in Toronto, Pan Am Games. Yes. And what was the mindset going into that one? And how did it go both physically and mentally for you? Pan Am Games was super fun because like you said, it was on home soil. Everyone I knew was going to be able to buy a ticket if they wanted oh, to, so awesome. to be there. Yeah. And I had actually just come off that stress fracture a second time. Oh, geez. so silly. But anyways, yeah, I know. Long story short, I'm back <laughs> and I'm like, in great shape. And so I'm like, oh my God, I have an opportunity to really win a medal. And Pan Ams is a very major competition for track and field because it's the Americas. It's all the fast, speedy countries in the world. Not all, but like many of them for sprints. Yeah. The number one ranked girl in the world is going to be on the starting line. Mm. Many of the Olympic finalists were going to be present at this race. And so it was kind of like, shoot, like if I perform here, like I am ready for the 2016 Rio Olympics. And so this is a, this is a moment to shine. And so I had actually just switched coaches and was being trained by a new coach named Bob Westman. He was still University of Toronto based. My coach retired. 
And so this coach had like known my development. So he knew me as an athlete and like how intense I could be in my workout log. We prepared to give it our best shot to try to win a medal. And I really knew I could. <laughs> the qualifying rounds, we ended up, it was really, really windy down the back stretch. So like after you turn the first corner and you go down the, the back stretch, the wind was just like insane in my face. And in the 400 hurdles, it's obviously one big lap around the track. And because hurdles require a certain rhythm and race pattern, the same way that you would have a favorite leg to kick a soccer ball, I have a favorite leg to jump over the hurdle with. And my race plan is that I get my bad leg at hurdle one, because the way that the pattern works out, because as you get tired, your stride length shortens, you feel like you're carrying a fridge on your back, like oh gets rough near the end. I want to get my bad leg at hurdle one so that I can get my good leg at the last hurdle when I'm my weakest and I need that extra strength. Because it was so windy in the qualifying rounds, it completely threw off the whole plan. Like my stride was shorter sooner because the wind is pushing me backwards. And so I ended up actually getting my good leg at hurdle one, which meant I got my bad leg at hurdle 10, the final hurdle. And I almost didn't make the final. <laughs> like I'm, I'm like kind of a guaranteed in the final person. And I almost don't make it. Like the girls are running me down close to the finish line where I'm like, holy moly, no one told me how terrible, how close that was. And wow. so when I watched the race back and I talked to my coach, I'm like, okay, so tomorrow should I change my starting blocks? Because if the wind's strong again, we need to account for this and make the plan fit this new weather pattern. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be as windy tomorrow. Don't worry. So I'm like, okay, we get into the stands for the final the next day. Starter lets everyone do a quick run out. So you get, you know, your blocks all set, ready to go. When I do my run out, the wind is still so strong no. again. And I'm like, oh my God, it's going to happen again. <laughs> I can't have this. Like, what am I going to do? Starter says, on your marks. And I start looking into the stands to try to find my coach to be like, I'm going to move my blocks. You know, like, I just want him to nod and be like, yes, good idea. <laughs> like I knew what I needed to do if I had to do it. Yeah. It was just that like, we shouldn't change the plan moments before I'm about yeah. to race, you know? <laughs> and so I pick my blocks up. I move that count for an extra step. And I actually had to switch which leg was going to go forward. Oh, geez. And so I have just switched my entire pattern like cross-functionally and so I'm in my starting box just saying left leg left leg <laughs> left leg trying to override everything I have done my entire life and like most of the last few weeks leading into this so I'm like left leg left leg left leg sun goes off I come out of my blocks I'm looking at hurdle one I know I need to get over with my bad leg whatever I'm like please 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 work out get over hurdle one with my bad leg nice. sets me up for the Yay. rest of the race. And I end up getting my good leg at hurdle 10 and I win a silver medal. Oh, wow. Only lose to the number one ranked girl in the world. Honestly, I forgot that that even happened. Oh. <laughs> like, I didn't tell the story of how I changed my blocks until four years later. Oh my. I legit forgot <laughs> because it happened so fast. You just did what you had to do. Yeah. Someone asked me, what were you thinking behind your pain in box? And I was like, what was I thinking? Oh yeah, this happened. And then I changed the box and then I do this thing. I was like, Man, <gasps> I, I changed my box. <laughs> <laughs> so the moral of the story, Lowell, I think, uh, we live in Lethbridge, which is also known as the Windy City. So I think probably uh, people should come train in Lethbridge to be hurdlers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but truthfully, the lesson there was honestly like, what's your hurdle one? Like what's the one thing that you need to do to focus on to just set you up for the rest of your race? It didn't matter what was going to happen at hurdle four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Until yeah. I got over hurdle one. Mm -hmm. And so it taught me the perfect race is executed one hurdle at a time. 
And I think I really saw that come to life that day. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) And how often in training and competitions combined do you nail your knees into the hurdles? I've definitely had some good face plants, some really good (laughs) epic face plants. (laughs) Definitely, not many in races. Thankfully. A few, but not many, (laughs) luckily. (laughs) I'm always the recipient of those Instagram memes or the gifs of people FaceTime. People are like, have you seen this? I'm like, yes, Yes, seven people have seen that. Actually, that one's of me. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. You'll be happy to learn. Uh, We were chatting with Joanne McLeod and she used to be an international competitor with hurdling. And did she? Yeah, yeah. She's a hurdler. Yeah. And she would often knock her knee into the hurdle. But now she has arthritis in the other knee. The knee that she banged up is fine. So you'll be happy to hear that. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. <laughs> Look out for your other knee. Banging up a few more times. Yeah. <laughs> so now you know something more connection with another amazing race. Canada competitor. Yes. Yeah. Joanne McLeod and you are both hurdlers. Yeah. Canadian national team. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. What happened after Pan Am Games? You get a silver medal, home soil, massive. Yeah. Props to you. That's awesome. What's next? Thanks. So then I am now in the media's eyes, a medal hopeful for Rio. All of a sudden the pressure's on. Yeah, exactly. Super exciting, but a ton of pressure. Yeah. And I am in the best shape of my life, to be honest, coming into 2016 Rio Olympics. You know, we're two months away. I feel like I am crushing it. I'm on a workout on a Tuesday and Tuesday I run super fast and my coach and I are like pumped. Like I go to bed that night being like, perfect. Like I'm going to go to the Olympics. I'm going to win that medal and I'm going to retire from sport. and Life's going to be great. Wednesday, I wake up and my hamstrings, the muscle in the back of your leg, super, super tight, which as you guys know, Lowell, I'm sure you feel this every day, (laughs) part of training, you know, it's part of the course. And I end up choosing to work out when I know I probably shouldn't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I go to the workout. Don't tell my coach that my hamstrings are really that tight. Halfway through the workout, he's like, Sarah, your your hamstrings, like you you look a bit tired today. You know, you're not really driving. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, uh, I don't know what's happening. He's like, maybe we should stop here. And in my crazy brain, I'm like, no, I can't let him let me stop. Like I have to do the whole workout. Like that's the whole point. Like, what should I do? I should come up with some excuse. And so I'm like, yeah, no, that would be great, but let's play a fun game instead. (laughs) How about if I run the next interval slower, I'll stop. But if I run the next interval, the same or better, you have to let me keep going. So he's like, okay, sure, crazy lady, go for more running. Who asks for that, you know? <laughs> and so I start this interval. I'm charging down the track. In my keynotes, I always make people like squirm in their seats because I'll say like, imagine what it would feel like to have a Ziploc bag really full of air, tightly sealed, placed in the back of your leg, just like ready to go. And someone comes along, uh. like stomps on it. It explodes in your leg. That's exactly what it felt like when my hamstring ripped an inch tear. Oh, gross. And four years after, I thought I already overcame the biggest obstacle in my career. You know, we did the thing. We have the comeback story. We overcame the stress fracture. We already have the keynote talk. Let's move on. face planted (laughs) on the floor with a ripple of this murderous pain through my body. And I knew it was bad. And I did everything I could to rush back. But I was probably only like 90% healed because I only had like eight weeks to try to recover. Uh. And so I didn't run really. I didn't train. I just gave every minute to letting those fibers reconnect Mm -hmm. so that I could even get on the track. 
And so at the Olympic trials, eight weeks later, I just try to do everything the same that I did back in 2012, like look down at the belief, tell myself if anyone can do this, it's me, like call my mom the same number of hours out from the race, like Mm -hmm. trying to do all this stuff and top three make the Olympic games. And I give the race everything I have. I'm a four-time national champion. I feel like I don't have to win this time. I just need to get top three, you know, Mm -hmm. like I have some buffer room here. And as we're coming into the final stretch, I am charging shoulder to shoulder with the third girl. And I'm like, I want this more than she does. We get over the final hurdle. We charge the finish line. I lean and I get fourth. Mm. And I miss qualifying by half a second. And I am heartbroken. Mm -hmm. Because as I'm sure you guys can appreciate, as we talked about at the start, you define yourself in something now and it's suddenly a lot harder to separate from the dream. Yeah. (laughs) For four years. I was going on stages, talking to people, telling them, if you believe in yourself, you achieve your goals. Find your word. Believe in yourself, achieve your goal. I was Sarah Wells, the Olympian. You know, Sarah Wells, the Olympian, please welcome to the stage. Sarah Wells, the Olympian. And now Sarah Wells, the Olympian doesn't make the Olympics. Mm. And I was devastated. Like I really thought I would never get invited to do a speaking engagement again. I thought my friends wouldn't like me anymore. I thought the whole world was going to flip upside down. And I thought I had been lying to people for four years Mm. because I told them, if you believe in yourself, you achieve your goals. And I just did that and I didn't achieve my goal. And so is it this sick joke that people tell you just to make you feel better? I took a whole year off of sport Mm -hmm. because I couldn't go to the track because it was just too hard and too painful. I hated it. I was so mad Mm. at the sport for letting me get this hurt. In that year off, I questioned everything, did a ton of my journal logging and (laughs) looked back at a lot of the moments and realized that, you know what? I could have given up. I could have torn my hamstring and walked away and said, yeah, I'm not healed. My hamstring blew up. I'm silly for working out that day, but like wash my hands of the dream and, and not put myself in a position to be that hurt kind of on the spot. But I chose to stand on the start line anyways. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, you know what? I believe in myself more strongly after not making the Olympics, Mm. even more so than when I did. And so clearly you don't build self-belief through achievements. You build self-belief through action. Mm. And that's when I founded my youth organization called the Believe Initiative, where we help young people build self-belief through action by connecting a passion they have and a problem they want to solve. And they use their passion to solve the problem and build self-belief through action. Now we've impacted over 120,000 students. We've initiated over 10,000 student impact projects. And, you know, I've been so fortunate to travel all across North America and get to use that story to inspire people Mm -hmm. to go for it, to not be so caught up in the definition of success that is so heavily reliant on outcomes, on achievements, and instead have them realize that hard work won't always lead to success, but being resilient will always lead to another opportunity for it. Mm. because a lot of Olympic athletes have the fall down, the get back up, the like overcome all the odds and then make it to the Olympic games. And that's awesome. Yay. Mm. But I don't know as many people that share the other side of the story of like, you can achieve the pinnacle of your sport. You can achieve the highest mountaintop you ever thought possible. And just as quick as you got to the other one, like fall off the edge of the cliff and still be resilient, still get back up, still believe in yourself so strongly, but just have it not work out. Mm. And every single time I share those two sides of the story, far more people tell me they're more inspired by the time where I don't make the Olympics yeah. over yeah. the time where I did. And so I think 
everyone can remember a time where they felt like a failure, where they got to that moment where they thought their friends were going to like them anymore. Or the whole world was about mm-hmm. to flip upside down. And I now see why it was important for me to go through both of those experiences. Cause now when I stand on a stage and tell someone like, no, believing in yourself will be the catalyst to like the spark to ignite your dream. I can come from a place of achievement, but I can also come from a place where I still believe that mm. even when it didn't work out for me. Yeah. yeah, It's been inspiring to meet young people and see them like really take that on and, yeah. and run with it. Yeah. I love that side of the story too, because even as you were saying that there were four of you fighting for three spots, I'm like all four of you probably believed in yourselves. Someone's got to not make it, you know? No, you're so right. That is beautiful. Your connection to the word believe and a lot of the work we see in psychology, one of the works that I do is working with people on their belief and being careful on what we're believing in. Mm. Sometimes there's a sense, I, I believe I'm enough when. And if we mm, attach yes. to when, when I get to a the condition. Olympics, then I will be enough. Right? Yes. It's, so tell me about that, how, about the belief and what you're believing in. Initially, I was believing in exactly what you just said, like, I believe that I am worthy and enough and successful when I achieve the thing. Mm -hmm. And when I win, when I can be inspiring, when I show people what's possible by doing it, by achieving, by, you know, that's how you're inspiring. That's how you make an impact. It's the when it's a conditional belief, Mm -hmm. conditional well-being enough. Totally. The when really is the difference maker in kind of getting really caught up in that because my initial experience was about the when, you know, I didn't really believe and then I wanted to. And so I tried and I tried and I tried. And then when I did it, I was like, oh, it does work. Believing in yourself does work. Okay. So I do believe in myself now that I have done the thing. Right. And when I, four years later, don't get the thing, I started to believe in the action, the like pursuit of excellence, which is my email signature. It says in pursuit of excellence Mm -hmm. because that's really what's mm-hmm. driven me and allowed me to follow open doors. You don't need to be in high school and figure it all out. You don't need to tell me what you're going to be when you grow up because that achievement when that you just talked about, that's going to change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's a good chance it's going to change. And so I didn't sit in the high school classroom and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to school for kinesiology. So then that way I can get more out of every workout. Because I get more out of every workout, I'm going to go to the Olympics. And then because I go to the Olympics, I'm going to start getting on stages and speaking. And then once I start getting stages and speaking, I'm going to start a youth organization to inspire others to build self-belief through action. Yeah. No, (laughs) that never happened. And I think when we remove the, I'll believe in whatever, when, or I'll believe in myself when, and instead follow these like kind of open doors. Like Mm -hmm. I did one thing, which led to another thing, which led to another thing. We remove the definition of success from outcome and we redefine the definition of success in pursuit of excellence. Yeah. It moves it from the outcome to the process. Exactly. And we removes it from the when and the if to the right now. I am enough. Yeah. I believe in myself right now. Yeah. Also, who knows what career options will be coming up later? Like when we were kids, we wouldn't have been like, I want to be a YouTube star, you know, all these different or podcasts, all these things that didn't even exist. So with our kids now, it's like, yeah, the world is wide open. You might end up somewhere doing something that doesn't even exist right now. We don't even totally, know. 100%. <laughs> you said earlier, retired. Are you done in sport after Rio? What was kind of the finale of your sports story before this keynote speaker starting youth organization, kind of the wrap up of the sports side? Mm-hmm. So in summer of 2016, I don't make the Olympics. I then like check out from sport for a whole year. So I don't come back until May, 2017. 
I started believe then and it looked different than it looks now, but it was little building blocks of what believe would look like of making an impact, going into schools, blah, blah, blah. And I went back and I trained 2017 and 2018 and went and got a silver medal at nationals one more time and whatever, like yeah, silver medal, <laughs> did just one more silver. round, but <laughs> it wasn't the same because I was now making decisions to build belief. And so I was saying yes to things like an opportunity in California and then fly to Seattle and then fly back up to Montreal and then come home to Toronto. And so I was trying to squeeze in workouts in like airport parking lots. And <sighs> when I started to realize, like I was saying, I still wanted to be a high performance athlete, yet all of my actions were saying otherwise. Yeah. Eventually I was ready to accept my fate, mm-hmm. but I wasn't, which is why I tried to kind of balance both at the same time. But once I got to a place of kind of like, do I really want this? Because I'm not really doing everything I can to make it happen. Yeah. And it was more like I was doing everything I can to make believe happen versus sport. And so January, 2020, I hosted a retirement party, did a whole speech, did the thing, you know, and said, I am going two feet in to believe initiative. You squeaked that in right before COVID. <laughs> Six days timing. later, every event I've ever had evaporates in front of my eyes. And so I'm like, cool, great. Kind of nice <laughs> that you had control over that. Like it wasn't the pandemic that made the decision for you. Like you actually took that yeah, control beforehand. Honestly, I do feel so lucky for that. I probably would have questioned forever, like, am I really making this decision for me or am I doing this because I feel like I have to? Yeah. But a double edge, because on that one, you would have questioned that. But also now you're launching your dream into events and public speaking and initiatives when the world shuts down. And so (laughs) you're trying to listen to your heart and believe. And now the universe says, hold on a second, Sarah. It's time to become really well acquainted with Zoom. (laughs) Yeah, right, right, exactly. (laughs) Honestly, it's like, oh, what's the hardest way, pathway to the goal? Okay, yeah, I'll take that one. That's my favorite path, yeah. (laughs) So you've been doing quite a few engagements via Zoom, haven't you? Yeah, I have done hundreds of presentations now via Zoom. (laughs) Good for you. It's shown me, actually, I really do believe everything happens for a reason. Like, I know it's a bit fluffy, but I really do, because it always works out. Like it always works out and it's mind blowing and it feels silly and I don't know why, but it always works out. It kind of affirms the whole idea of resilience that you have. It shows that as humans, we are resilient. The whole world was faced with this and look at what so many people have done with it. They've just kind of pivoted and kept going. Yeah. (laughs) A hundred percent. You can get used to a new norm pretty quickly, like faster than you think. Mm Mm-hmm. What we've done now is our, we were in-person events and we had to go in schools and we host these big summit days where we'd have hundreds of kids in the gymnasium all together and every kid would pick their Believe Passion Project by the end of the day and then curriculums would be run by teachers and then we would come back and we would celebrate the students for all of the amazing impacts they've made. And then we ran into two obstacles. One, we couldn't do events. Mm-hmm. And two, teachers were so overwhelmed that they didn't even want to look at us. Like, even yeah. if we're like, okay, no event, but here, do the curriculum for the students to still get the experience. They were like, don't talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, get yeah. Out of They're already relearning how to so. teach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 100%. So we were like, okay, what can we do? And so we went virtual for the event, kind of kick off. And there's ways you can make it cool. Like, yeah. you bring out inspiring individuals, you bring out people with enthusiasm that can like exude through the screen. You can still make it come to life. It's not the same by any means, but it's something. And then we said, okay, we can't talk to teachers and we can't convince them to do this, but there are some pretty amazing student leaders in the world. What if we got them to peer run the program through this virtual platform? When we removed the teachers, we did everything virtual. 
we've launched 43 different chapters across North America with a student leader as the host, as like the head of the chapter. We train them, we give them the tools and how to get their peers to build belief passion projects and build the leadership skills that we were already trying to do. And we had in our pilot program, we did just 12 schools. Those 12 schools got 450 students. Those 450 students created 250 projects. And those 250 projects created an impact on 19,000 people. Oh, wow. And in the spring, now that we saw that it worked, like, holy moly, this is the future of the program. It's a win-win. It relieves the teachers and gives those student leaders confidence and chance to build their leadership skills too. A hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. So that hurdle, those obstacles have become the opportunity. And that's the beautiful thing, even that story of getting to that first hurdle. But now you have this new hurdle that the pandemic comes in the way. And what do you do? Do you stop? Do you give up? Do you look around (laughs) and see what others are doing? And no, do you just charge on forward and and learn and leap and jump over? Mm -hmm. And if it's a racetrack worth going down, it's not going to be easy. We're very proud of you for the work that you've done and are doing and changing lives and helping kids believe in themselves, not for what they will do, but who they are right now. It's pretty powerful. Thank you. We have taken so much of your time and we haven't even talked about the race yet. So let's let's transition to the Amazing Race Canada. So first I would like to know how you decided to do it with Sam. Sam and I, we just like share so many different passions. It's not like Sam and I are like texting every minute of every day, chatting. Like I know a lot about Sam's life, but there's a lot I don't know about Sam. So on the race, you spend a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. It was kind of great because we're both athletes. So we both know the athlete circles together. Then we were both sponsored by RBC and we had like our mentors and supporters and like kind of like the things we were building were like we knew that whole network of RBC together. Then we both cared about youth organizations and impact and like he works with classroom champs and I had Believe Initiative. It's like every element of our lives, we have so many similarities. We're both Mm. very enthusiastic individuals. We just share so many of the same like values and morals and We've just been there for each other. Your Venn diagram together is a circle. Yeah, exactly. Our Venn diagram (laughs) together is a circle. (laughs) Sam has always been just like the biggest champion support. Like he is a wonderful friend. He is such an amazing person. And it's like, I can always trust on Sam to like, just like build me up. He makes you feel like a rock star. And Mm -hmm. I don't even understand how it happened really. But like, (laughs) I was just like, yeah, I could totally see us doing the race together. It honestly is almost better not with your partner and with a friend because there are certain boundaries you just like can't cross where like there's moments in the race where you really want to yell at someone, you know, like you're just under so much pressure. You haven't slept in days. You just are like, why are you doing that? Like, that's a terrible plan. You you still have moments where you're a bit feisty at each other, but you're friends. So you can't cross the line the way that you can like yell at a partner that you're like, what the fuck is that? Like, what are you doing? Did you ever feel feisty with me, Lowell? I don't think so. Lowell's not that type. The only time, <laughs> did you? No. I... Oh, oh, also, I'm like, oh, wow, it's coming out now. This look at his face. I'm like, and here we are. <laughs> Therapy. Yeah, I know. The only time that I felt like feisty, frustrated was when we were doing the bubble soccer drill. So I would always explain to him, the ball is coming. Lowell's very visually impaired. He has tunnel vision, very narrow tunnel vision. And so the very little he could see, he could not see out of those big bubbles we had for bubble soccer, because not only were they these big opaque bubbles, but the GoPro was right in his line of sight. So I was describing where the ball was going to him so that he could kick it. But then he was returning the favor to me, bless his heart. 
and taking up time to describe it in my head. I'm like, I can see. Just kick the ball to me and I'll get it. That was that was my feisty moment. I'm you like, you don't need to describe this to me. Just hurry up and kick it. I'll get it. <laughs> I don't even know if I've told that to you before, Lowell. Have I ever told that to you? <laughs> Those moments, right, where the feelings are so strong and raw and yeah. it's, it's race mode, but in a race you haven't prepared for. So I'm really good oh. under pressure. I love like you and before a hurdle, like you, you know how to channel, you know how to focus, you can visualize, you use all your mental tools because you know what's coming. In the amazing race, you have no idea what's coming. You're <laughs> out of your comfort zone and now you, you're on national television. Yeah, It's a lot of anxiety to try to manage and yeah. I'm pretty good oh at God. that. Yeah, but no, you're very good at that. But it's still knowing in that moment how to move that energy in the right way and sometimes it leaks. And yeah. that day was our, that was our elimination day and we made a decision at that moment actually because that was doing a drill for bubble soccer and the second part of the challenge which they never aired was playing against a bubble soccer team and I was oh. watching the other teams do it and you had to score against a team. And I was like, there's no way that I can do that by myself. And there's no way that Lowell can see to help me. So before we even finished the drill, cause we could have done the drill, like just try a couple more times. We could have done it. We decided to switch detours. And that was our fatal mistake because you know how often one of the detours takes way the heck longer. Yes. That was the sailboats that we switched to. And the second thing is we learned after production, of course, that once you started the actual bubble soccer game, they told you that you'd get your clue after you scored or after 15 minutes passed. So oh. we were 15 minutes away and we would have probably been second that day because the other two teams, Steph and Chris were way ahead and the other two teams would have been U-turned. Oh. You know, the what ifs, the what ifs. The what if games you play, you know, from a team <laughs> who came in second. Yeah. What are some of your what ifs? There's a few, actually. So in the final leg of the race... She's reliving it with her mm -hmm. the head and her know, face in her hands. Yeah. <laughs> Not many people understand these feelings. Yeah, so you no, guys are the first to ask it. this question, <laughs> for sure. One of them is that what we had to do is we had to go to Toronto. After we touched down in the big airport, we had to go to the private jet one and sign up for our little dinky flight to get to the next stage. Each flight left like 20 minutes after each other. So you got a 20-minute head start. When we touched down in Toronto, we sprint out of the airport, we get into our cab. We had looked up the direction. So we knew, I already knew we needed to exit, not on the like 401 thing, but you had to exit on the like airport road. And as we're, we're driving up, we're kind of in panic to like read the clue. And I'm just trusting that my airport limo taxi man knows which way to go. I looked up and I saw that we were going to veer to the 401 one, not to the airport road one. And I'm like, mm. no, 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 I think you're supposed to go left. And then he's like kind of already turning into the 401 one. Which it's like a negligible difference in normal life. <laughs> in oh, yeah. normal life, yeah. it's a negligible difference. Nothing's normal about the race. <laughs> it is a very huge factor. Everything matters. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, oh my God, like, okay, mm. fine, sure. Maybe we're fine. So then like our guy's crushing it because I'm kind of mad. And I'm like, no, 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 you were supposed to go the other way. Like you're supposed to go that way. And so then he's like, it's fine. We can go here. And so he's like really going for us. So I'm like, okay, great. Thanks, buddy. Like appreciate you making up the time. And we're like, we can't see any of their calves. We totally got this. We show up. Anthony and James have already signed their name on number one. And we were like minutes behind them for sure. And minutes is a big deal, yeah. of course. So we were for sure like two or three minutes behind them. And part of me is like, what if we would have went to the right exit? That was just so frustrating. So that's a what if for sure. <laughs> the second what if probably comes as more of a bit of a domino effect from that because whoever got on the plane first, you then did the challenge first. And then you got out of that challenge. Yeah. And 
you eventually go to this water exercise where you've got to shoot water out of your boots and climb up to this oh. like it like puts you like airborne um in these like water boots and then you got to dodgeball your beanbag bag into a I big hole that, yeah. and there was actually a bit of a hiccup behind the scenes that again that did not air but something happened where like they broke and they actually had to pause time mm. and they screwed up the time they like were like okay so uh you restart in like 17 minutes and I was like what? That doesn't make any sense. This wasn't 17 minutes is this time, whatever. I think it got sorted out, but there was a small discrepancy in some capacity and every minute matters. And yeah. so Anthony and James were allowed in the water for X amount of minutes before we were allowed back in the water because of this hiccup. What if that five minutes, because mm-hmm. after someone leaves, you're a bit demoralized. And so it's like that adds yeah. into, so it's like, for maybe sure. it would have only taken him 10 minutes, but it took him 20 because you're a little bit defeated Mm -hmm. because you just, you can't let go of the fact that other people have already left. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then the last one I'll say is there was a, what if around, I wish I would have learned how to use a drill before I left for the amazing race, because I've never really used a drill and you know what? I blame sport. I really do. I blame sport for that. As long as there's something external to blame. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I feel like I I could have built stuff. I would have been a builder. I'm a very tactical, like I like to have my hands on things. And I never asked how to use a drill before. I've always just like let other people do it. Or I build Ikea furniture and just need an Allen key. You know, like you don't need a real drill. I think if we would have had more experience in using a drill and building a tool, then we could have made up some of the time that we had lost. And then the final challenge, we built it faster than Anthony and James. You know what? But if anyone had to win, I'm glad it was Anthony and James. It actually sucked that it was Anthony and James because they're super nice and incredible humans. Oh, you couldn't be mad at them. You couldn't hate them, hey? (laughs) And because they've used their platform for such a good too now, which is awesome. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, I hate that. (laughs) You didn't learn how to use a drill. Do you know how to drive a standard? Did you go in prepared for that at least? It's shocking when people don't. Don't let that affect your answer though. I didn't, but <laughs> Sam did. Okay. And so he was like, don't worry, I'm getting Sophia to teach me. And so I'm like, okay, cool. Relax that part of your brain. Yeah. So positive things of the race now. One of my favorite parts of shows like The Amazing Race Canada is when they display the most beautiful parts of humanity. And I believe that happened to you guys on that leg where you did not have enough money for a cab. How did it actually go behind the scenes versus how it was aired and just like how these beautiful people became involved in your race and gave you like a lot of money? A lot of money. (laughs) Not no money. We had in other legs of the race always had money left over that you have to give back to the producers at the end of the leg of the race, as you guys know. And so we were kind of like, okay, rather than paying out our cab and then having to like start and stop and have to find them again, especially in a place like Yellowknife where there's not an abundance of cabs and there's not people walking around to like use their cell phones to call a cab. So mm-hmm. we should just keep this one running. And so we never paid, we just said like, we, it, we always have extra money, so it should totally be fine. So we just let our cab meter keep running, keep running. And you're in chaos mode. So you don't actually look up ever. And by the time we get to finishing the challenge, we're like, oh my God. I'm like, Sam, like, okay, we need to pay this guy. And he's like, Sarah, we don't have enough money. I was like, what? I was like, like looking in every What do you even like, do? Yeah. Did we put some somewhere? Like, did we like accidentally, you know, at a challenge right now, stuff it. Oh my God, where's all our money? Like, how did we run out of money? I thought we always had money, you know? And how much time had passed? Probably six hours. Like, is that how much we had? Hours. To? Okay. Did you guys also run out of money? No, no but we, but... we had a cab waiting and it was about three hours. It was a very expensive oh, okay. cab ride but still. But it was pretty expensive, but not six hours. So then 
when we need to pay our cab, we're like, oh my God, like this is where it ends for us. Like we're we're done for. And we had had to stop at a small little uh, geography center, like map center, because we didn't know how to do the map challenge, which is super embarrassing. Um, but we could not remember our grade five geography. Hey, we're used to and, iPhones and uh, GPS. Yeah. Exactly. No judges. <laughs> and so they had just taught us about that. And I was like, maybe we just need to go back to them. Honestly, here's another like a life lesson I've learned through sport and starting my own business and all the things is like, ask for help. Swallow your pride. Like every chance yeah. you get, if you are in any friction format, ask for help. Yeah. Someone is more willing than you ever thought possible to help you. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you're entitled to that help and you don't act as if you are, but be open to it. We make ourselves feel like such a burden to others when like every mentor I've had, you know, I've, I've talked about my coaches and my family, like people are so willing to help because yeah. it's not a one-way street. Like it's so rewarding to help support someone. Like I feel that way when I get to give to mm-hmm. people. So it's not just a one-way street. And so I think just in my brain, it's just like, you're in trouble, ask for help. <laughs> what can we do? Mm-hmm. We don't know people in Yellowknife. We've never been there before. The only people we had ever had contact with was this geography center that already helped us. And so I'm like, let's go back there. So we get our cab to drive us back there and they're closing because it's 5 p.m. and everything there is like opens at nine, closes at five, right? Like it's like very structured. There's no, like an hour ago, there was tons of people in there. Now there's no one in there. There's two people in there. And so we're yelling and they're like, hey, hey, we're like down at the bottom. Remember us? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Remember us? And then someone comes to like, they're like exiting or like leaving the thing. And as they're leaving, we're like, hey, hey, you, you remember us? Yeah, we um, need money. <laughs> so could you help us? And he has like 60 bucks, but we need like 95 bucks or something like that. And so he's like 60 bucks. And then he's like, I think there's one more person upstairs if you want to go talk to them. So we sprint up the stairs. We have some other guy and he's like, uh, and he has like $40 only in his wallet. And I'm like, oh, do we have change, Sam, to like give him his $5 back? <laughs> and then Sam's like, no, we could end up needing this by the time we get back. So like, sorry, man, we're not giving you change. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Which is like such a smart call. Yeah. So those people were so generous. We hugged them. Mm. They did not ask for it. <laughs> we were like, forced it upon them. After the show aired, we used social media to say, screenshot it and said, hey, do you know this we don't even know what the name of that facility was because you're not conscious. No. Yeah. Oh, no. And so we're like, do you know this facility and this man who is the image on the thing? And through like three social media connection points, we find them. And so Sam and I sent them an autographed photo of each of us and a letter. And we actually gave them a, an amazing race clue, like an official oh, nice. clue. Oh, that's so nice. Just to say thank you, because you, you're right. It's like, they didn't have to do that. No. So that was one moment. And then one final moment was right near the end we had traveled so much with these other teams like we had been sitting there like on planes and trains and getting to know these people as real people not just competitors but as real Mm -hmm. people and we had just come off a 10-hour train ride where you know how there's the four seats that face each other on train rides and so we had just come off facing Arthi and Thinesh for 10 hours getting to know them learning about their families doing all this stuff And when we pull into the station, we have to run out to go to the ROM and we have to do our next challenge to get to our next clue. And Arthi is panicking. Like they have not sorted out the puzzle. Sam and I are stomping it. We figured it out. The clue is Thunder Bay. We have already called for a check, but we had written because we were sorting out the pieces. We had written Bay Thunder, but we knew the answer was Thunder Bay. So we just thought we'll say Thunder Bay. We don't need to have it written in the right order. 
turns out you do need to have it written in the right order. But <laughs> so we were like, okay, check please. And the author said, guys, what is it? We can't figure it out. What is it? Oh my God, we're going to get eliminated. She's like freaking out. And I, with no filter, just say, it's Thunder Bay. <laughs> Like, I just give them the answer. Like I couldn't hold back. You knew them on a different level now. Exactly. And Sam was like, what? Sarah. <laughs> I'm just like, Oops. I'm like, we have to help them. They're our friends. Like, we can't let them be eliminated. Like they're in this with us now, you know? Yeah. And he totally understood. He was being a smart player. Yeah. Like, he was being smart. <laughs> yeah. Now, if they would have won the race, that may have been a what if moment, but <laughs> you're so right. But now it can be a Thank beautiful. Because Sam probably would have never forgiven. <laughs> I would have never forgiven myself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We had in Jasper, I all of a sudden realized I didn't have my jacket. And, you know, after you're done a leg, you can't go back and, you know, it's gone. And I'm like, but I don't even know where it could be. And running to the the mat it had happened for like the first time with our sound guy all of a sudden Lowell's mic ran out of battery and so as we were getting out of the truck to run to the pit stop he was trying to switch his battery and so it was all very stressful and I think I somehow dropped my jacket anyways you know how at the hotels at the pit stop we had the supervisors you know our like babysitters our handlers babysitters all these different words whatever they were in the hallways the two ladies that were in our hallway were so lovely. We got to know them in the hot tub and stuff. Anyways, I was so upset about not having my jacket. They're like, what's what's wrong? Are you okay? I'm like, my jacket. I don't know. They're like, okay, we'll make some calls. We'll try to. And the next day it was hung up on the inside of our door. They, and I haven't, no. I haven't seen them or spoken to them since. And I tried to reach out to them. I contacted a producer and asked for their information, but I think they didn't know who it was. Anyways, so... If she's listening, <laughs> thank you. No, anyways, I never, I know, and I, we very much remembered her because it was, and as you know, the first, after that first leg, it's, you're so emotionally drained. Like it is just oh my so God, the first much. Leg. It's the worst. <laughs> it's the best. It's, it's the, worst. the worst. It's like so emotionally and physically, mentally draining. You have no idea what you're signing up for when you start that first leg. Like you have no idea. And it's Until surreal. you've done the first leg and you're like, what just happened? I just ran six hurdle races in a row. <laughs> yeah, right. With like no food and no sleep. <laughs> yes, so true. Wild. Anyways, well, Sarah, thank you so much for chatting with us. We loved learning more about your athletic history, your Believe Initiative, of course, our shared race experience. And you're yeah. doing so much good for the youth in this world. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so lovely to chat with you guys. This is probably the first time I've ever had a 90 minute podcast and have it like fly by. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's so fun just connecting with other people, especially with shared experiences and yeah, yeah, you have so much to offer. So thank you for allowing us to share Mm -hmm. your story. Good luck with everything. We hope we can share your story. We definitely have learned from your mindset and so are thousands of people benefiting from your life, your story and your passion. So keep it up. Keep believing. Thank you guys so much. You're amazing. Yeah. And one day post COVID, if we find ourselves in the same city, hopefully we can uh, hang out in real Please. life for realsies. Yes. That would be amazing. <laughs> awesome. Well, nice right, to meet guys. you. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Yeah, yeah, you you too. too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, Sarah. Bye. Sarah Wells. Oh my goodness. So fun connecting with her. It's always fun to speak to somebody with so many shared experiences. We have so much in common with her. And I actually even thought she maybe had a background in psychology or something because the two of you use a lot of the same terminology and you have similar mindsets and you communicate your mindsets in a very similar way. Maybe we read the same self-help books. Oh, I should get onto those, hey? Or, or, or <laughs> podcasts. Uh, podcasts that are not true crime. Hey, hey now. <laughs> you at least relay the information to me, so that helps. <laughs> 
She's had a life of high performance. Coaches, people who've spoken into her life, who've challenged her. She's done a lot of work on her mindset and the power of family. She spoke to how important her family was to her. This just giving her opportunity, the connection, the safety that she felt the belonging and just this yeah. really cool relationship she had with her siblings as well. So, so cool. I want to know more about her older sister because she's the one who initiated that. Yeah. Maybe it's all in the name. Give, give a kid a super cool name. She's going to do super cool things. Is that mm-hmm. no, but just the, the foresight that she wanted to hang out with her younger siblings and whether she knew it or not, she created that environment of safety and belonging. And I don't know if Sarah noticed my eyes were totally like red and watery through that. Cause that was, kind of emotional listening to that just how close and supportive her family is like how lucky mm-hmm. not the power of belonging within family it can be done so well but it's also one of the places where so much pain can happen as well yeah she's had ups and downs she's had injury she's what had disappointment she's had success and the really big moment is a sense of belief and not just believing that you can do something and you'll be okay when or if I believe I'm enough if I'm rich or good looking or a winner or when I get to the Olympics, but more so I can believe in who I am and my character and she can help instill this belief in youth in other people Mm -hmm. all across North America and the world. Yeah, it's amazing. Just chatting with her for this podcast, you can tell how well-spoken and articulate she is. So I know that her keynotes are probably amazing. So go ahead and book her. Her web address, her web address, who says that? Her website is sarahwells.ca. That's S-A-R-A-H-W-E-L-L-S dot C-A. Or go to believeinitiative.com or on social media. She is sarahwells400mh. And that MH stands for meter hurdles. So like 400 meter hurdles. Get it? If you're in need of a motivational speaker, keynote speaker, if you work with youth, definitely check this out. She is big into leadership and empowering Mm. young people and helping them believe. And with that, we can change the world. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Can't wait till we get to talk to Sam and get his version of some of those race stories. Like when she (laughs) gave the answer to that puzzle. Get to hear the flip side. So to our amazing race sister, thank you. And to everybody else, thank you for tuning in to another Obstacles and Opportunities. Yeah. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Leading to Tokyo 2021, this podcast will be focusing on the stories of elite athletes. If you or someone you know has overcome obstacles on your quest for world-class competition and you'd like to be on our show, please find us at obstaclesandopportunities.com and reach out. Our podcast social media handles are at obsopspod. That is O-B-S-O-P-S-P-O-D. And our personal handles are at Julie Lowell Can, J-U-L-I-E-L-O-W-E-L-L-C-A-N. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.